Jackson Ward in Richmond, Virginia, is usually talked about in its 20th century context, the Harlem of the South. It was a thriving neighborhood and business district. In 1903, Jackson Ward's Maggie Walker became the first woman of any race to charter a bank in the United States. Performers like Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, and Duke Ellington would travel to the Hippodrome Theater to cut a rug all night. Now, two daughters of Virginia, Cisha and Anjali Moon, are taking Jackson Ward all the way back. All the way back to the late 1700s, when the first known black homeowner in Richmond purchased his lot. What we saw when we uh, came across his home was, as Cisha likes to say, our Monticello. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Lauren Francis, one of the producers of the show, and today's host, as we explore homecomings in a shifting Virginia tourism landscape. Anjali Moon was preparing to celebrate the fifth anniversary of her film festival, Africana Film Festival, when she asked her sister Cisha Moon for a favor. Could you help me find a few facts about historic Jackson Ward? Two years later, that favor has become the Jackson Project. Through the Jackson Project, the sisters aim to recontextualize the history of Jackson Ward, the nation's first federally registered black neighborhood, and to reconstruct the home of its first resident. What Jackson Project's work really focuses in on is what happened before 1871. So our research really starts in like that 1760 timeframe mm. when William Byrd, the namesake of the park that we grew up across, um, he is technically the founder of Richmond, quote unquote. And he, you know, he comes into some financial troubles in the mid 1700s. He parcels off some of his privately owned land and does like a, a lottery, I guess you could say. Then what you have is the first known Black homeowner in 1793. And so, you know, when we were at the height as a Harlem of the South and a Black Wall Street, it's because we were standing on a good three to four to five generational shoulders right. of Black homeowners and entrepreneurs in what would become Jackson Ward. Tell me about um, Abraham Skipwith, that, that first Black homeowner in 1793. This is a Black man who revealed to have direct ties to the Founding Fathers. Um, we know that he's enslaved as early as around 1760s, in the 1760s, by a gentleman named Jacqueline Ambler, Secretary of State under Thomas Jefferson. Um, he's enslaved with him for several years, and then in 1782, he's sold to a gentleman named Thomas Bentley in Williamsburg. He's enslaved with Thomas Bentley from around 1782 to 1785, at which time he files a legislative petition for his freedom because apparently Thomas Bentley um, has passed away. Um, all that we know is that the legislative petition wasn't granted. Right. So we had to do a little bit more digging, understand more about Thomas Bentley. Um, in short, he abruptly dies. There are some issues with his uh, will. And what that causes is that his estate is caught up in court for several years. Once the estate is actually settled in uh, December of 1789, two weeks later, that's when we have Skip with manumitting himself from two local merchants um, named uh, Warrington and King. His next known whereabout after 1789 is when he lands back in Richmond on the northern edge. He buys these parcels. That following year, he manumits his wife, Chloe, and his granddaughter, Maria. He, in addition to being the first known Black homeowner, he's also one of the first Black Richmonders or Virginians with a fully executed will, which he establishes in 1797. He then uses that will to earmark funds for the descendants that he's unable to manumit during his lifetime so mm -hmm. they can manumit themselves, hopefully. Um, but then it's it's a remarkable will. I mean, he writes this on in May of 1797, and he bequeaths, in addition to the funds to manumit yourself, but he bequeaths a gun, silver, gold, livestock, and a horse and buggy. We're from Richmond, Virginia, former capital of the Confederacy. Never in my wildest dreams did I learn in school that a black man was riding around Richmond, Virginia with right. his own horse yeah, and buggy. Like his own, not in service. His own, not in service. It's so outside of the narrative that we've ever been told. So what, what became of his home and his land? It stayed in the family for about 100 years. It was then uh, his family kind of, over time, uh, either moved out of the state or uh, passed away. And so uh, it was left into a trust. The trust sold the home to the Coleman family. And the Coleman family uh, 
kept the home until the 1950s. Uh, they only left because the home was forcibly condemned in order to make way for the interstate. Like most homes in Jackson Ward, mm-hmm. uh, we were under the impression uh, because of some records that we found um, and then just because of the fate of most other homes, we, uh, we were under the impression that the home was demolished. And so it was moved mm-hmm. by the family who is considered to be really the godmother. One of the women is the godmother of Virginia Preservation. She and her crew saw the architectural value of the home, decided to dismantle it and to move it to their land. Let's be clear about this land, though. This land was 5,000 acres, um, a former tobacco plantation that was once owned by the Secretary of War for the Confederacy, James Seddon. So what we have in Skip With is a man who worked his entire life to manumit and free himself and his family. in order to establish his own place, his own dwelling, uh, and pass that down for that home to be broken down and then taken back to a plantation. And it's been at that site since 1958. And as you said, this kind of leads us to our work because what we saw when we uh, came across this home was, as Cisha likes to say, our Monticello. Right. This is an opportunity for us to have an actual remnant. First of all, to have a remnant from the 1700s is rare, typically in general. Uh, But most certainly it's rare uh, for something that was owned by black people. Uh, And so initially our desires were to move the home to actually lift it off of the foundation and move it back to Jackson Ward. Um, but after doing the architectural Mm -hmm. reviews, you know, we were able to kind of denote that maybe it's not as much historical structure there as we would like. And so we are exploring what it means to actually rebuild the home, reconstruct the home uh, for interpretive purposes, but to be able to do that in a place that is um, geographically accurate uh, within Jackson Ward. And so that is what the Jackson's Project current initiative is, which is the Skip With Roper Homecoming. It was sad to know that a lot of the um, original fabric was removed from Mm -hmm. the home. Um, But but what this reconstruction for interpretive purposes will allow us to do is to actually rebuild the home with the accuracy that reflects what Skipwood's home originally looked like. But I think some of the bigger opportunities with this. One, as Anjali said, to have remnants Mm -hmm. remaining from the 1700s, but especially of a Black man is rare. And not only with the house and the opportunity to to reconstruct uh, his property, but we also have this man's legislative petition, his manumission papers, as well as his will. Um, a lot of Black American history um, from that time is based on right. oral traditions. Um, but to actually have papers that are his exact mm-hmm. words um, are quite rare. Um, but then when we even think about how, what does this mean? One, it means that we can tell a more multidimensional narrative about what it meant to be Black and from Richmond and from Virginia and in America at the time of, it, of, of this country's origins um, by leveraging the origin story of Jackson Ward. But then we're also able to look at the field of historic preservation. You know, what does it mean to protect Black spaces mm-hmm. and faces and places and, you know, decide, deciding what sites are worth saving. Um, because this is an exercise in, in what it looks like to have to reconstruct because our spaces weren't held sacred um, once they were, quote unquote, saved. But this will also make us come face to face with the role of infrastructure projects in disconnecting communities of color like a Jackson Ward. Yeah, it almost seems to me like the more I learn about Richmond's history, the more I'm like, oh, people like made a decision that I wouldn't know this. That they that did. it would take me until like my twenties. Hmm. Oh yeah. To hmm. really start to connect <laughs> these dots. You know, I wanna mention uh Gary Flowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we took one of his tours. Okay, Brother Flowers is just like everyone he, needs he's to a do man. That. He understands Jackson right. Boy history and is so beautifully anecdotal and rich and textual when he delivers it. But in talking about it, talking about the history of Virginia, um, at one point he was talking about what was called the Virginia Way. That was an actual thing that was created in the late 1600s, early 1700s, as they were thinking about like revolutions that are happening, uh, specifically the one in Haiti. Mm-hmm. There was a level of fear you know, going around the globe, around, is that what we have to an- anticipate um, what Louis Vuitton uh, brought, to, brought to task? Well, in Virginia, what they decided was, if we don't talk about it, no one will know that it existed. How else will they know? There is no internet. 
They only know what we tell. And, you know, that was labeled the Virginia way to suppress information that we don't want out. And so I think that that's what we see Mm. at play with a great deal of histories, unknown uh, black histories, histories that, you know, maybe white histories that people want to submerge. And that's just been the reality. And so to be here in 2022, but launching this in 2020 um, at a time where people can actually respect the stories like a skip with that are being told and they don't just collect dust in the corner um, Mm -hmm, is -hmm. is really exciting and important. And so while Jackson Project is um, helping to lead this work alongside several other organizations have been doing this work well beyond the year in which uh, the Moon Sisters have, you know, started to uh, enter into this space. That was our question. We know what the Virginia way is, but what are institutional responsibilities to chart a new way for Mm. Virginia moving forward? We know what the last 150 years meant for Jackson Ward. What is the commitment to chart a more diverse and equitable and inclusive and accessible uh, future for the ward? Because that access is important. Sure, we can have the desire to want to find out who is our Jackson, but do we have access to the archives and to the records to be able to do that? And when we walk into these spaces, do we feel welcome? Do we feel like we belong? And, And I think that's one of our overarching goals with the Jackson House is to help partner with institutions across the city to create a space where the community members as well as travelers that are coming into Richmond can can say, mm-hmm. yes, I found that space where I can find out who my Jackson is. And once the, those Jacksons are found, are those institutions ready to elevate those truths, mm. right? Are they really ready to add that into uh, their coffers in terms of the stories that they tell? And that is what I'm hoping to see. I'm hoping that Jackson Project is one of many, yeah, right? Because yeah. we've been in, embracing certain spaces, but we also know people love to, we don't want to be tokenized in the work mm, that we're doing. Right. Right. And so how do we hold these institutions accountable to say we are looking to open the door and keep it open for others who come behind us to continue to tell? Because we know that Skip With isn't the Mm -hmm, only story mm -hmm. that's emerged. So as they continue to be unearthed, are you holding space for them and will you hold them in the proper regard? Cisha and Anjali Moon are the founders of the Jackson Project a historic reparative nonprofit that aims to recontextualize the history of Jackson Ward, the nation's first federally registered Black neighborhood. Just down the street from where Abraham Skipwith purchased his lot, Kelly Lemon's Cafe, the Urban Hang Suite, is jumping. She spent her whole career in Jackson Ward and credits it for making her the hospitality and tourism giant that she is. Lemon is a member of the Virginia Tourism Board of Directors. She says that Richmond will become the number one destination for tourists who want to learn about Black American history. And it's thanks in part to beloved restaurants like Croker Spot and Mama J's, where Lemon established roots in the hospitality industry as a manager. So you said... Mm, Not so you said. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, nope, over with. (laughs) Over with already. (laughs) You said that Croker Spot is the OG, but it's Mama J's that really put the Black restaurant scene in Richmond on the map. What do you mean by that? Yeah, okay. See, see, you're trying to give me a trouble already. <laughs> um, what I mean by that is Croker Spot, um, through the legacy of the Eggleston family and what they mean to Jackson Ward and Second Street and, and really being a staple in, you know, like Southern hospitality in general, right? You had the hotel, you had the restaurant, you had the entertainment venue. That's where people gathered. And so they laid the foundation. And, and, and Croker Spot was a, um, a, a household name to people in Richmond. Right. And it was it was my job when I got to Mama J's to make sure it was that Mama J's was a household name, period. <laughs> so how did you go about doing that? Um, using the resources that I was afforded by being able to sit at tables that a lot of people weren't mm-hmm. at. And it wasn't because of food that I was at those tables, um, but 
being not with me not knowing that was a passion of mine. And so mm-hmm. I knew that that's where I was going. But take, for example, my career, you know, right here at VCU, you know, it was it was it was in student affairs and, and student affairs is all about the student life, student engagement and how how you're being outside of the classroom. And so where you live, where you ate, you know, who you hung out with, all of those things. And so as I am, you know, learning those things or those places or who's in charge of those um, things around Richmond, you uh-huh. know, I am getting involved in these organizations. I'm doing the thing. And so it's making me know, all right, well, wait, so-and-so's on that list. How we get on that list? Right. You know, that, oh, you got a writer coming into Richmond? Oh, are they, go, are they coming by to see us? So it was just a... I was I was able to be at the right place at the right time and be able to say that. And then what's grown out of that is now to be able to do it for more restaurants as, you know, we did. We're doing with Richmond Black Restaurant Experience. So I was I'm glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. I was going to ask, like, how did that experience in Jackson Ward shape you to be such a giant in the hospitality industry? My whole entertainment, my whole hospitality career started in Jackson Ward when I first started working for um, Mr. Bojangles mm-hmm. Restaurant, which was um, a brand of the Croker Spot, which, you know, the Eggleston family owned. Um, and then came back home to, to Jackson Ward and, um, you know, I'm taking claim, but true Jackson Wardians are saying that I'm I'm right there on the edge with, with you know, my coffee shop, Urban Hank Suite. Black culture, um, black entrepreneurship was birthed, right? I mean, it was right. You can feel it, you know, mm-hmm, it's right mm-hmm. there. And because you can feel it, you know, I think a lot of, 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 of what the work that we do is just a continuation of what they did. Mm-hmm. And we're just able to see it through. So tell me about the Urban Hank Suite, where it is and some of the history that you've learned about your spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that Lester Johnson, owner of Mama Jay, said and, and other people have said is that the spot chooses you. You mm-hmm. don't choose the right. spot, right? So to know that it is on the north side of Broad Street um, because, you know, when we were separate, um, you know, that was the north side was the black side. That mm-hmm. is the side that's closest to Jackson Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, the south side is the side that had all the white shops. And the north side had those same shops, but were for, um, you know, the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be in a building that I know was where you know, our ancestors or those from Jackson Ward community were able to shop where they could be entertained. And, you know, one of the the, the stories that gets passed down from um, from um, some of the older women from this neighborhood is that, you know, you wasn't in Jackson Ward at night unless you had a <laughs> job to do, okay, honey? You know, like you was, you was getting your money, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, there, it was some adult entertainment going on, <laughs> you know, down there. And you can actually see kind of like the little cutouts of where you would walk down the steps. And um, on the walls in the back, if you look up, um, you can see the the women, you know, that are still oh, painted wow. yeah, on the walls on the back of the building. I mean, it's just it's a clear example to us right now what happened back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, again, the hang suite was created to make sure that people of all anything any any type of thought any type of race any type of mm-hmm. mindset sexuality whatever would feel comfortable in coming in just to have casual everyday conversations you know wherever it may lead you over a hey how you doing yeah. You know, what's yeah. up? How you doing today? You know, or you're ear hustling. That's what I call it. Because somebody's at the table talking about something that you're highly interested in. Right. And you cannot help but get involved with it. All it's doing is you don't know whether or not that made a connection. That connection might create something. That thing that you create is culture. Hmm. And it seems like the culture that you facilitate at the Hang Suite is something that you very much learn from being a part of all the culture in Jackson Ward seeing the way that everything flows together to make an experience. Yeah, but, you know, not only Jackson Ward, let's just say Virginia. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. let's go Richmond, but we can go Virginia, mm-hmm. you know. I am a proud black woman <laughs> from Virginia, you know. And, you know, 
people that aren't from Virginia be like, oh, you claim that? You know, right. that racist, right. that racist state. Yes, I do, because we started here. The mm-hmm. first, the mm-hmm. 22 and odd Africans right here mm-hmm. in Hampton. And so you feel it in your blood. And one in four can trace their roots back to Richmond. You know, again, mm-hmm. don't play us. <laughs> we started this. Right, you play right? yourself. You, you, you don't you play. from here. Right, right. <laughs> Put some respect on Richmond's name. And so, you know, when it comes to the fact that I could, I could live that proud, mm-hmm. but be raised in all white neighborhoods, go to all white schools, but never lose that, you right. know, when I finally got to my blackness and and, and coming to Richmond and, and being in, you know, the north side of Richmond or, you know, traveling to the west end and the south side, just but just truly also knowing what the people that live there went through, you know, with us being the capital of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. but also knowing that they was doing it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is very evident that they were doing it right. back then. And the only reason why they weren't celebrated was is because it was so frowned upon that they was doing it back yeah. then. In a major way. In a major way. So tell me about your work with the Virginia Region Tourism Board. Yeah, you know, um, again, all of this stuff is in God's plans. It's all organic. It's all very natural. Um, mm-hmm. I am. I feel like I'm Virginia's head varsity cheerleader. You know, <laughs> like I feel like I've, I've always rode for this state mm-hmm. um, and and wanted people to come and wanted people to visit because we see every season, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of weather, we have every, we got mountains, we got water, you know, we got politics, we got, we got city, we got country, you know, like, what? Like we're in the <laughs> middle. We're the we're the northeast. We're like right there mm-hmm. in the middle. We got north, we got south, you know? Um, and so I just when I was kind of really, really telling people to come visit Richmond and being a, a spokesperson for Richmond, um, you know, me originally being from Tidewater. Um, and living in three different areas down there and then, or two different areas down there, and then coming to this area, living in two different areas, being in Charlottesville because I went to UVA, like Mm -hmm. knowing what was going on in Roanoke, you know, feeling what was happening in Fredericksburg. Again, I felt like, wow, I know this state and I'm an advocate for this state. So it was a blessing to be appointed by Governor Northam on the Virginia Tourism Board. So I want to also talk about some of those recent developments with Virginia tourism. There's been a greater focus on black Richmond. So what have you seen? Mm -hmm. So, well, okay, you got two levels, you got two areas with that. So um, Richmond region tourism, which is, you know, under the umbrella of Virginia um, Tourism Corporation, um, they have, you know, always tried to figure out how to, um, you know, maybe advance areas to which Richmonders are, or Central Virginia, excuse me, um, is is highlighting or celebrating. Mm-hmm. And so they started out with out RVA. Um, and, you know, they grew that to, you know, you know, huge levels, not only here in Richmond, but, you know, made an example for what we should be doing on a state level. Now, a year ago, August, um, they created BLK RVA, um, which is a very intentional tourism program to make sure that um, not only... Again, Central Virginians knew what was happening in the black experience. But if you came to visit, it was all right there in Mm -hmm. one space. Now, every year they choose a theme. And so this year, Virginia tourism, um, one of the themes that they are going with is black travel is essential. And it is to make sure that our outdoor space, our agricultural spaces, you know, our main attractions, Mm -hmm. our hotels all of those places, you know, not just got a photo of a black person, you know, <laughs> but, you know, truly can tell the black experience or a diverse experience, um, you know, by by just maybe sitting around and kind of listening to the people that are there, the locals, you know. And one of the things that I learned that I thought was was interesting is that the data was showing is that when black folks travel, it's not that we're exactly looking for other black people, mm-hmm. but we want to know, is it just, is it more people than just white people there? You know what I'm saying? Diversity. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like, <laughs> it's just like, is it more than just, yeah, you know. And so that's a different mindset, I think, 
when some of these places think, oh, we got to attract the black traveler. We got to mm-hmm. do black people things. That's nah. not what we're saying. You know, don't get the fried, don't put the fried chicken in the watermelon <laughs> and the red right. Kool-Aid on your menu. That, no. Right. No, that's, that's, that's not it. Yeah. So I did want to ask you, what does black travel is essential mean to you? Mm-hmm. It, it means that, um, that we as black um, Americans um, need to also probably step out of our comfort zone and give some places a try that are trying. You know, not everybody's going to get it right, but we may be missing out on a lot of fun um, because we're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go there. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you heard about them in 1986. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you oh, you you might be right. but that, <laughs> 86. That so is 1986. Ooh, you know you might got to let that one go. You might do, but they might not. You know, you got to, but, but that's the folklore of it. Mm-hmm. That's the green book. Right, you know what I'm saying? Right. That's the whole thing is that, you know, your grandma's, scaredness of that place in 1986 is you you still feel that has created your entire geography Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, the city of the state mm -hmm. you've heard that one story Mm -hmm. over and over and Mm -hmm. over again and you swear you believe it because you've heard it so many times so what do you see happening for black tourism in Virginia or what do you hope to see happen in black tourism in Virginia over the next 10 years We will be one of the number one destinations to travel to if you want to learn anything about black American history and culture. If you if you are not stopping in Richmond, Virginia first. You're gonna miss a lot. You kind of you kind of went backwards. You did you you know like did you did you want to go in order or did mm-hmm. you want like how did you yeah you just want to piece this thing together? No, no, we're gonna make sure. And I think that the work that is being done by some of the black leaders in this city and in this state in general mm-hmm. um, is going to define that with some very you know monumental moments coming in twenty. 2026, 20, 2026, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and beyond. Um, but I think that the stories that we are unpacking are going to allow for, you, you just have no choice. Mm-hmm. You know, like, again, it, you're, it's going to fe- put some respect on Richmond. You're going to feel a little stupid if it's not in that order. Kelly Lemon is the owner of the Urban Hang Suite Social Cafe and a member of the Virginia Region Tourism Board. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason, from Virginia Humanities. Just after World War I, Amaza Lee Meredith built a house for herself and her lover. I was reading this book, and I said, hold up. I said, this woman was born in 1895 and then teaches at this school with her partner. And then they built, she builds and designs a home for them. Today, the flat-roofed, single-story dwelling is seated on Virginia State University's campus, where Meredith was the founding director of the university's arts department. The home is painted a bright turquoise that gives it its name, Azurist, Azurist South. Meredith was one of the nation's first black female architects. She was also a meticulous record keeper. Jessica Lynn, a writer and arts critic, has been spending time in Meredith's archive. Lynn is the co-founder of the arts criticism journal Arts.Black and is working on a collection of essays about love and faith in the American South. So about three years ago, you were in New Orleans and you came across an image of two women and you kept this image. What portals did it open up for you? So in New Orleans, I was with um, my dear friend, Taylor Aldridge, and we were spending time thinking about our 
journal and project, Arts.Black. And one of those days, I took some time out to visit um, Material Life in the Seventh Ward of New Orleans. And the owner and kind of head archivist um, of this store, Carla Williams, she had a bunch of images that she was kind of sorting through on her checkout desk, if you will, at the checkout counter. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that she places to the side this sepia-colored um, photo of two young Black women. They're mm-hmm. sitting on a large rock. Um, they're out in a field somewhere. You know, to me, in my mind, I imagine them having just finished, like, picnicking or, you know, they're just out enjoying a summer day. Um, mm-hmm. It's The weather's clear in the image, you know. And one of the women is kind of seated against the chest of the other, the other woman. And this woman who's kind of on the outside of the rock is holding her arm and embracing the other woman. And as soon as I saw it, I asked Carla... I said, can I have this image? Um, (laughs) Can I have this photograph? But, you know, Lauren, I've been thinking about that image a lot because for me, in my mind, those Black women were very Southern. And I'm probably wrong about that, you know, but at (laughs) the time, it spoke to me, you know? I think that in my own wayfinding process and wayfinding journey... Some in some capacity, this image of these two women, it, it kind of said, like, you're on the right, you're on the right way, Jess, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and as cliche and corny as that is. <laughs> but it's true. I it's do true. feel that. I do feel that. Did she ever tell you where she got those pictures? I never asked her. And that is probably my huh. biggest regret. Because when I saw it, I was so compelled by the these two women. Right. I didn't actually care about all of the other um, elements of the photograph that happen to not be captured in the image itself, you know? Do you find yourself, when you take pictures of things and people, thinking about who's going to see that? Like, for me, if I take a really good picture of a friend, I almost always think, like, oh, their kid's going to love this picture. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I am someone who believes in, like, the way Black people create records of ourselves on both sides of my family, I have grandmothers who are very meticulous record keepers. And I ask them as a young person, and I ask them every few years, are you, you know, did you actually leave these to me in your will? You know, I'm very, I'm like, I want the photos. You know, cousin so-and-so and and aunt so-and-so can come to me if they want to see them. I'm happy to Mm -hmm, stand and distribute. mm -hmm. (laughs) But I want the actual physical object of Mm -hmm. the image. You got to get that position now. We're not going to have any confusion about this after the fact. And so I asked regularly um, because I saw it modeled for me. You know, I can sit with a grandmother, both of them who are still blessed to be alive. You know, I can sit with them and we can talk about an image and they can tell you every single thing mm-hmm. that surrounds mm-hmm. that image, not just like mm-hmm. in the the present moment of the image itself, but they can tell you all of the things that surround it that go back for 10, 20 years, you know, because all of that mm-hmm. too is a part of the photograph. So you mentioned that when you found that picture at Material Life, you had already, I'm going to say, met a Mausolee Meredith. So how did you meet her? Yeah, so I first learned of Amazalie Meredith through the scholar and writer Mario Gooden. Mario Gooden published a book in 2016, um, Dark Space, Architecture, Representation, Black Identity. But there's a small essay on Amazalie Meredith in the home that she lived with her partner, Dr. Edna Mead Colson, for over five decades, um, called Azura South. And Azura South is located on the grounds of Virginia State University, which is an HBCU um, in Petersburg, Virginia, actually not too far from Richmond, um, for those who are not familiar. Um, It was the school where Amaza earned her teaching certificate. It was the school 
where she returned to create and co-found the art department um, after having studied in New York for a while at Columbia University and Teachers College there. And it was a school where her partner, Dr. Colson, also taught. And so I was reading this book and I said, hold up, this woman was born. (laughs) I said, this woman was born in 1895, lived, you know, at the time, materially a privileged life. You know, Mm -hmm, she... mm -hmm was born to a black mother and a white father um, and matriculates throughout these institutions of higher education, has these experiences in New York, makes a decision to come back South and then teaches at this school with her partner. And then they build, she builds and designs a home for them and they live there until the 1980s, the mid-1980s, when they both transitioned and passed. And to me, that was mind-blowing. Yeah. It was nothing I had personally encountered. Right. Nothing anyone ever told you. Nothing anyone ever told me. Not just related to who she was as a Black queer woman living mm-hmm in the early 20th century, but also who she was as an artist and an architect, right? Because I think connected to this conversation about narratives um, that surround those of us who are Southern and the places we come from, there is also a conversation to be had about the way folks think about artists from the South or what isn't here, you know, like what's not possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this woman was a brilliant artist You know, she was a lover. She was a mentor. She had her church. She was going to, you know, and I I said, oh, all of these things that I am trying to think about for myself, you know, um, she had possibly and actually been thinking about for herself, you know, 100 years before me, (laughs) you know, like that to me was mind blowing. And so I always talk about encountering Mario's scholarship as kind of like an open door. So I know pre-pandemic especially, you were spending a lot of time in Amazali Meredith's archives. What were you able to find? Her archive is pretty fabulous and very fascinating. You know, she has pamphlets and ephemera from trips that she would take abroad with Edna, trips that she would take with her students. She has all this ephemera from familial research um, that she had done and conducted. She has letters from the different presidents of VSU, from like other colleagues in her department. Um, She has photographs. She has so many photographs. And on one visit, especially before the pandemic, I was trying to go like once a month. On one visit, I found this photograph of Amadza and Dr. Colson. Um, they're like outside in their carport, I believe. And Dr. Colson is in a wheelchair and like Amadza is kind of has her arm on the left side of the wheelchair and they're both looking at the camera. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like this is beautiful. Look at these black, beautiful black women. Um who are just outside in the carport taking a photograph together, you know? And they're well into, that photograph is like 1978, 1977. And this is just a few short years before they both pass, you know? So they are well into age here. Here's Jessica Lynn reading from her essay, That Which We Are Still Learning to Name, which explores more of her research and all with Amazali Meredith and her partner, Dr. Edna Mead Coulson. Among grand notions about what romantic love must look like, almost all of it heteronormative, I stare at Meredith and Coulson in awe that I have found another example of that which we are still learning to name. Maybe it is enough to know that these two black Southern women have chosen to save and protect this photograph such that it remained in the record, such that one day I would find it or that one day it would find me. Like the photograph of the two unnamed women that came to me in New Orleans. If I look at each photograph and listen closely, it is possible to imagine each pair as a version of the other, 
with time marvelously compressed and then decompressed. Maybe this, then, is part of that which is black and queer and southern, to be in and out of time, to be illegible to most. Our lives captured become their own text, an insistent language that only becomes legible if we truly know how to see. You know, I really love this image. I have it in front of me right now. They almost, you know, remind me of my great aunt. Mm -hmm. There's this familiar sort of uh, stoicism or or this deep professionalism. Mm. Although they're Mm -hmm. at home in the comfort of each other's presence, there's still this professionalism to Mm -hmm. it. You know, they they read to me as women whose Mm -hmm. lives are Mm -hmm. organized around their civic duties, you know, church and teaching and, Mm. you know, the VFW. And I know you'd mentioned before that your grandmothers are very meticulous record keepers. I wonder, how has looking into these women's lives impacted your own record keeping? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, both my grandmothers are meticulous record keepers. So when I returned back to Virginia in 2019, one of the first things, or one of the first few things that... I decided or started doing was gardening at the invitation of another friend, um, Brian Parker. And, you know, it was right before, again, right before pandemic, we had all these expectations. The Hmm. garden was located near um, Buckrow Beach, which is in Hampton, Virginia. And if I was in the area going to the garden, I would try to like say hello to drop by and see my grandparents. Um, You know, and of course there was like a whole negotiation around this because it was during COVID time. But one of these trips, I remember talking to my grandmother about her grandmother, Ava Murray. And I I had known that my grandmother was mostly raised by her grandmother. You know, like I had known... um, central details of her childhood. But on this one particular trip, we were talking about Ava, and she was just like, you have her spirit so much. Um, And so I asked her, I was like, Grandma, do you have a picture of her? She was like, actually, I do. And so she goes upstairs to her attic, and it's a photograph of my great-great-grandmother and her sister. And I'm looking at this lady, and again, it's another moment of, like, awe and, and like, stunned because I get to be Ava's great-great-granddaughter, you know, with this little plot of garden that I have. And that plot mm-hmm. of garden is bringing up all of mm-hmm. these memories from my own grandmother that I had never heard before. You know, not because she was keeping secrets, but mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. almost like something was unlocked. And to me, this is a that was a that was another instance of portal opening, you know, and like revealing itself to me and reminding me that I have an ability, have an opportunity mm-hmm. to tend to these memories of my grandmother that don't belong to me firsthand, mm-hmm. but also are deeply connected to who I am in the world, you know? Right. And <laughs> that picture of my great-great-grandmother, I asked for it. She, of course, my grandmother didn't give it to me. She <laughs> she, she made some jokes. She was like, mm-hmm. you already know when you get in the photographs. And I said, okay. Um, but so I think it really cultivated a, a, another level not just of urgency, but another level of enthusiasm to be really loving in how I caretake, um, to be as respectful as possible, to be honest, mm-hmm. you know, but to also be excited to do this. If this is the thing that I can do in my life, then sure, like this is the thing that I can do. And if I can write about my South and the South of my grandmother's, and all of the discontent and discomfort, right? It doesn't mean that we glorify things. Um, But if that's the one thing that I can do, then I'm going to do it, you know? Are there certain things that you imagine about 
a Mazali Meredith that you've not been able to confirm in the archives? Mm. That's a really great question. By the time I come to Amaza's archives, there is a box on the guide mm. that is acknowledged as like not publicly available. And I believe that in those that not available mm. um, box is the box of correspondences between Amaza and Dr. Colson that Dr. Taylor refers to in her dissertation. Um, I should say the dissertation was written in 2014. So, you know, some years have passed. Um, and I'm sure um, the kin of both of these women may have made decisions about what they wanted to be publicly available or not. You know, this is just me speculating. But I would love one day to mm-hmm. see some of the notes that they wrote to one another, um, you know, or some of the letters that they may have exchanged. What is present in Amaza's papers are cards and letters that they received as a couple, right? So you will find former students writing to Amaza and signing off like, give Dr. C my love. You will find family writing to them mm-hmm. saying like, we can't wait to see you and Edna at da 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 you know? Um, but I had not seen them writing to one another. And I think selfishly, those are some of the materials that I would love to encounter. That's so Southern to me. But if I don't, it's okay. (laughs) That it's not available anymore. Yeah, that's so Southern to me. I feel like they probably made that decision. You know, like, this is our private life. That's true. And if my papers end up somewhere... (laughs) My papers probably will be absented. A few love notes, that's right. why. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think writing about, like, love and faith in the South, of course, I would, it would be a boon to see at least one, you know, even one. Right. Um, but I'm okay if I don't. Because I think also what I've realized is, for so long, I kept thinking this project is about them. And the fact of the matter is, and this is very scary, is that the project is not about them. You know, this emerging essay collection is actually about me. Mm. And that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said earlier, I feel like someone like Amaza, someone like Dr. Colson, even the two women in that photograph that we referenced when we first started talking, like, all of those folks are implicated in the writing. I think mostly, yeah, it might be about, about me, and that's just, that's so daunting. As I search for further imprints of Colson or Meredith's papers, I come to a folder that contains a photograph of the two women later in life set against a backdrop of trees, greenery, and their carport. Colson is 85, seated in a wheelchair with her clasped hands resting in her lap. A white jacket is draped over her shoulders. Her expression is stately. Standing to her left is Meredith at 78. She wears an almost startled look, although the photograph appears to be posed rather than candid. Meredith's left hand grips the left armrest of the wheelchair as her right hand holds onto the back handle. Though they don't smile, they are alert and attentive. A comfort lingers between the two women. The folder containing this photograph is dated 1973, 12 and 11 years before Colson's and Meredith's deaths, respectively. Miss Meredith, Dr. Colson. Let's just get one before I leave. I won't be back in town for a few months, I imagine a companion saying while holding the camera. It's a plea that mimics the way I plead with the elders in my life to take photographs with me when they would prefer not to be bothered. Meredith and Coulson do not touch in the image. Perhaps they are tired or uninterested at the end of a long afternoon of hosting, which they were known to do quite often. Meredith, especially 
actively kept in touch with her former art students who loved keeping her abreast of their travels, families, and thoughts about contemporaneous Black life at home and abroad. Perhaps this photograph has caught the two elders right before their evening rituals. It might not be an intrusion, but rather a punctuation to a day that has been so full for two retired octogenarians. How many photographs does one amass in the course of a life that spans almost 90 years? What intimacies have been captured between these two women who have carried one another for almost 50 of those years? What did it mean for these two Black women to choose a queer life beyond the legible frameworks for Black mobility, safety, and romantic love? What were the terms under which they named themselves? Jessica Lynn is a writer and co-founder of the arts criticism journal Arts.Black. She is currently working on a collection of essays about love and faith in the American South. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. Special thanks to Chioki Ianson and the Virginia Public Media and Institute of Contemporary Arts Community Media Center, and to Barrett Miller II for engineering some of this episode. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Jamal Milner, and me, Lauren Francis. Our executive producer is Sarah McConnell. Our interns are Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. <laughs>